In 2 Samuel, we looked at all those texts and just made some brief comments about several of them. We noted the reoccurring theme in those texts, a lot of those texts, of the mystery of the Gentiles or the nations. I'm seeing that more and more. I'd seen some of it before, but having looked at this covenant study, it just there's a lot more there. Going back to this idea of the mystery that was hid before time that's revealed in the transition, especially between the Old and New Covenant times, of talking about this mystery of the fact that God is going to bring in the Gentiles and that these two peoples will be one, one new man. It's not just that he's bringing them in, but they're going to be one. Having said that, or, or having known that, we should all the more oppose weird ideas of eschatology like dispensationalism that would, that would tend to keep those people separate. We, we had talked also about the, that the gospel is the preaching out of the terms and conditions that fulfilled by Christ in the eternal covenant. That's what it is. The covenant was made before time. Christ came, fulfilled it, and then the gospel is, is preaching out of those terms and conditions of Christ fulfilling the covenant that was promised and sworn to before time. And, and that idea directly is displayed and laid out in the distinctions of the new covenant. As we had said, uh, anyone in the Old Testament times that was saved, it's because that new covenant reaches back in that time period and they believe the Messiah, the mediator, who was um, one who shed his blood of the new covenant. They're not believing in law and sacrifices for salvation, that's for sure. But certain tendencies are there of false views of eschatology to bring people to those conclusions that that is how God saved back then. And he didn't. We read in Hebrews, it dispels all that. Nobody was ever saved by the blood of bulls and goats and heifers and lambs and so forth. They'd only pictured the one to come, Christ. So the promise was made by God freely, sovereignly, according to his will, counsel, purpose, decree. And it was done in the everlasting eternal sovereign uh, covenant of grace before time, and it was absolute an unconditional promise. In, in other words, it does not depend at all upon our works, our obedience. And it's not connected to the law in our hands. Christ uh, came to not destroy the law, but to, to fulfill it and to satisfy it. And this is part of something that we can't do, that has to be done and we have to keep our hands off of it. Any conditional covenant between God and man that has ever gone throughout history has failed because man fails to fulfill the conditions. And here the God-man is the one, the promise, that he is going to be the one that fulfills the conditions. And it says that he shall not fail. He will not fail. He won't be discouraged. So all these promises concerning gospel promises related to the covenant are in Christ, yes and amen. They will happen. He will not fail. And, you know, this is a basic idea that we have to continue to remind people that the gospel is something that is already over with. It's done. The formulation of it is historical. It's, it's, it's already done 
when we're born. I, I made a statement not too long ago, and I, I reshared it that the gospel is not a relationship with God. A gospel is the personal work of Christ already finished. Now, the fruit of it may deal with the relationship. It does, of course. It's effective. But the gospel is outside of us. It's an objective truth that is already completed and finished. It does have fruit, though, and uh, that's what we're doing right now. We're partaking uh, of that uh, even this morning. Turn to uh, Psalm 16. Let's look at uh, some more language here about some of the promises that are connected in the covenant and uh, between the Father and Son. And this is a holiday today they call Easter. features the resurrection of Christ, and uh, which we, we talk about all the time anyway, his death, burial, and resurrection. But I want to see some things here. Uh, I knew in the covenant there were things connected to the resurrection, and, and here is one. Verse uh, 8, Psalm 16 and verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now, when we read this, think of the context. We have David writing this. And sometimes words that are written don't refer to David. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they're mixed. So think about this in context of our study on chosen in Christ and specifically in the covenant between the Father and Son. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Now, let me say one other thing with um, the modern King James and some other uh, more modern versions. The uh, translators of those versions will use personal pronouns and capitalize them so you know it's it's God talking I, I would think rather than meaning David and and this does this here I think because of the interpretation later which we're going to next in Acts that's going to talk about this verse 10 for or because you will not leave my soul in hell you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. Speaking of Christ, this is who the promise was too. Now we know by extension, and we're probably going to get into this later, uh, because he didn't see corruption, that means we won't. We can talk about the purpose of the resurrection, some of the implications, if we have more time at the end. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to finish what I even have here today anyway. So there is the, there is the promise, one of the promises in the covenant between the father and son. And the son is assured that he understands the father saying, you won't allow me to see corruption. Christ is the holy one. Verse 11, you will make me to know the way of life. In your presence is the fullness of joys. At your right hand are the pleasures forevermore. Now go to Acts 13. Now, I, I think in times past, we've maybe gone to uh, Acts, I can't remember which chapter, um, maybe three or four, that deals with some of this stuff. Acts kind of goes over some of these uh, stories several times. But here in, in chapter 13, 
what I'm getting at is I think the earlier chapter is the most popular quoted when it comes to this. So we're going to go to the uh, one that is not quoted as much. Chapter 13 and verse 22. Let me say before I forget, because I didn't copy and paste all the way down to verse 48. But the emphasis, remember, of the covenant, one of the promises in the covenant is part of the mystery of the covenant is the bringing of the Gentiles and the Jews and Gentiles being one. Now, some, there's some Gentiles here listening to this. And does somebody remember what verse 48 says? I mean, I'm not looking at it, but this should be a memory verse for you guys. And when the Gentiles heard it, they were glad. And as many as were ordained unto eternal life believed. And there's that mystery being fulfilled, being taken, taken place, where the, here comes the Gentiles, a bunch of them coming in. And, of course, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. So here we go, verse 22. And when he had removed him, King Saul is talking about, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed has God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. So he's bringing a history here of the bloodline, the lineage that uh, is coming through, you know, the, the Hebrews, the Jews of Israel, and, you know, it's coming through David. There's this promise made that this trickle-down thing, here, here is the one that we're talking about. It says, when John, verse 24, had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance, to all the people of Israel. And as John fulfilled his course, so he had his part in due time, he did his thing, he fulfilled his course, right? There's means. This is a, an unfolding is what's going on here in this, in this preaching that's done. It's just unfolding the things that were purposed and planned, and then here come the means unfolding. He fulfilled his course. He said, who do you think that I am? And he said, I am not he. Behold, there comes one after me whose shoes uh, of his feet I'm not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you fears God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Israel and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. So they thought they were big and bad free willers and say, now nah, I'm rejecting Christ. They were just fulfilling so much for their free will. They were fulfilling the scripture that said this is exactly what they would do. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they pilot that he should be slain, right? You see the means working out through the wicked hands of those that oppose Christ's word. And when they had, verse 29, when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, and not even knowing they're doing it, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher, you know, in a grave or a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
And he was seen of many days which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses unto the people, witnessed his resurrection and him walking around after he resurrected. And we declare unto you glad tidings or good news, how that the promise which was made unto your fathers, which was related to the promise before time, in reference to this one, God has fulfilled the same unto their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is written in the second psalm. And we looked at that last week. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. We looked at Psalm 2, 6 through 8 last week, and that was a quote from that. Remember the rest of that, ask of me and I'll give you the heathen for your inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth. As concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And we looked at that last week in 2 Samuel. Wherefore, he said in another psalm, you shall not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. We just read that in Psalm 16. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, he died, and was laid unto his fathers, same burial area with the people that died before him, and what? He saw corruption. The worms ate him, you know. So this promise was not necessarily talking about David. Remember, he said, we looked at last week, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And it's connected all this here too, verse 38. But be it known to you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, by Christ, all that believe are justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Well, plan B would be to have some animal sacrifices and that'll cover it, right? No. It is not possible that that blood would atone for sins, would cover sins, would forgive people for sins. Now, uh, while we're in Acts, go to, go to chapter 2. And I uh, just want to read two verses connected to this whole thing and idea of the resurrection connected to the covenant. Acts 2 and verse 23. There's, there's a bunch here that would be, uh, I think we quoted this a couple weeks back. There's a bunch of good stuff here we could hang out and camp on, but I'm going to go use this and go to something else. Acts 2.23, this one, Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, and that, that was in the decree in the covenant, you have, uh, and, and you have taken by wicked hands and have crucified and slain. That's just what we read about just in 13. That it was planned, and that's when I said so much for the free willers, they did it so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not even knowing what they were doing, or probably even knowing that scripture was talking about them. 
Notice this, whom God raised up, God raised Christ up, having loosed the pains of death. Why? How? What? Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Death could not hold him. He was raised again. So we kind of just want to pose the question. And uh, the answer is, you know, has many aspects. You, we could unfold it in many different ways. Why couldn't death and the grave hold Christ? Now, we know that because of who Christ was, who he was in his person, he was the eternal son of God that took on flesh. He was sinless and he performed what he was supposed to do, that it was agreed to in the covenant. And the promise in the covenant was, you're not going to see corruption. The father was so sure and certain that, that this one who was elect and precious could do this and would not fail, that there was no... Uh, he, he the father invested him whole, his whole self, his character, in swearing that this would be the case. The God who could not lie did this. We know that Christ was given, uh, John 17 says that he was given in many other places, authority or power of eternal life, to, to give eternal life to as many as the Father gave him. We know several other aspects of what happened in the covenant of the appointments that Christ was appointed to different tasks, surety and representative of his people. I mean, he was responsible for their salvation. They were not. We are irresponsible. We have to have someone do it for us, in other words. So he had the, the full responsibility of his people. He made full satisfaction for their sins, and he brought in an everlasting righteousness. And that's what was said to, uh, prophesied to happen, that he would bring that in for his people. So therefore, since that was accomplished, and because God is faithful to his own character to honor his promises and pledges and the fulfilled conditions of the terms of the covenant, then he raised Christ. He raised Christ and justice was discharged and Christ came from the grave and was raised as a result. And Christ fulfilled all the conditions of the covenant. He, that's what he meant when he said it's finished. I've fulfilled all the conditions of the covenant. That's what he was saying when he said it's finished. And all those conditions being fulfilled secured the justification of all his people. So the promise of the resurrection must be fulfilled for several different reasons. But the resurrection, we talked about the application of that earlier in the introduction, that the resurrection must take place for us to be resurrected. What's it say in Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15? It talks about, you know, if there's no resurrection, the Sadducees were saying there's no resurrection. So if, if there's no resurrection, then you're not going to be raised and your faith's in vain. You're wasting your time here, in other words, if there's no resurrection. So there couldn't be any resurrection for us unless Christ was raised. Go to Isaiah 55. I'm going to survey uh, some other texts here. And um, two in Isaiah, and then we'll go to Hebrews, and we'll see how much time we have here. Again, as we hear this language, think about it in a covenant context. 
Isaiah 55, verse 4. Behold, look, in other words, I have given him for witness to the people, a leader and commander of peoples. Let's talk about Christ. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, a nation that you did not know. Remember the mystery? They keep talking about it. A people that were not my people. If you're familiar with Romans 9, it refers back to, I think it's here in Isaiah, that talks about that. Uh, look in the middle of that verse there, verse 5. You shall, you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon because my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Now, we had uh, talked about this a few weeks back. There was a question answered about when this verse is quoted about my thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways are not my ways, that, that we can't think it was asked. Do you mean we can't think any thoughts that God thinks? And I said, no. I'm talking about what this is talking about is by nature, automatically, because of the fallen state, one who is the natural carnal man has no idea how to think because he's spiritually dead. He can't think in a spiritual sense. So when the spirit gives him life and light, he has the mind of Christ. The spirit is in him. He believes the word and the word constitutes his way of thinking because he confesses or says the same word about the word concerning Christ. So, of course, by nature, we know that God had this, God had this plan to save and it unfolds and we see how it worked. But by nature, we, we think, okay, somebody springs on us. Hey, there's a problem. There's a sin problem. What's your plan? Of course, natural man comes up with a plan that is nowhere near like the thoughts of God's plan that has always been throughout eternity. They have a way that where they take the law and they do their thing. They establish their own righteousness. And um, God here is saying, for as the heavens are higher than the earth. In other words, it's opposite. You know, that's what we are by nature. We think that way. We think the opposite about the way of salvation. There is a way that seems right unto man and the end of his ways are death. It's the way of self-righteousness. It's the way by nature that we think is the best thing we can do, but as we do it, as an unconverted person, we did it, and it was the worst thing we could have done. And everybody that's doing that, if they die in that state, at judgment, they will be the ones saying, because they had a conditional salvation, but Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? And what they're doing is they're pointing to the things that they think Salvation's conditioned on. 
And you can fill in the blank of, of what that would be, or several blanks. Usually it's more than one thing, but it's just works religion. Go to 53, a couple chapters back. Most uh, very familiar, most popular Old Testament, in my opinion, Old Testament uh, chapter in the whole Bible. Probably the clearest gospel presentation in the Old, Old Testament. And as we read uh, verses starting in 8, again, think of a covenant context here. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? He was cut off of the, out of the land of the living. In other words, he died. And notice this. This is substitution language. For, or in, in, in their stead, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet, even though he was innocent of himself, we know he was guilty for the sins of other people. Verse 8 told us that. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And now it says in verse 10 here, Yet it pleased the Lord or the Father to bruise him or Christ. This has to do with satisfaction in Christ satisfying the wrath of God. It pleased the Lord or satisfied the Lord to pour out his wrath on him because there, there's no other way to uh, exhaust the wrath of God on anybody unless it was the elect at this time. God's wrath will never ever be satisfied ever in any context. It's only right here. So in other words, if you're not elect, God has some wrath for the not elect. He shall put him to grief when you shall make his soul an offering for sin. Just talking about him. This is not mystical here. This is just talking about Christ. When it says soul, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Now, as we go through here and we see the, the unfolding of what was promised in the covenant and we see it was prophesied and then we see the prophecy being fulfilled by Christ, we see the fulfillment of it. And then the gospel can be formulated based on that and those that are believers in the gospel, no matter what time period, receive the benefits of the death of Christ, all the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. And it includes our resurrection, for example. This will the Father sent me, that all has given me, I'm going to raise him up in the last day. And that's not just out of his power, that's based on the authority of his death and fulfilling what it took to be able to raise them from the dead. So you see, it's, it's the whole thing. And in verse 11, it goes even further here in, in reference to the effect. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's the ground. 
upon which he can give these things to his people. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So this, in the promise, it's talked about eternal life. If he promised eternal life before time, something better happen that makes it work so that people can have eternal life. Because if he fails somewhere along the lines, it's not a promise, it's a lie. So there are terms and conditions, stipulations of the covenant that Christ, how he is, what he must do, how he is to be, and how he is to deal with the law, how all these various things of him being a priest and how he is to be that sacrifice. And all those things have to be all perfect to satisfy the Father so that the Father can release all those blessings and agree with what was done and say yes and be a fulfiller of the promise to Christ because Christ said he would do certain things for the Father. In other words, there's no lie of the truth. Everything went just as planned. Remember how we talked about that before? The decree is like this. The covenant talks about it. Christ comes, performs it. It's the same. All this is the same. It's recorded just the same. We believe it just the same as it's recorded and preached out. We go out and preach it. We preach the same thing. We don't change the message. It's all the same. And our assurance in all that is concerning the same thing. And when we are with him face to face, we worship him concerning this self-same message, the whole thing. Worthy is, is the lamb that was slain. Even in different unfoldings, who's going to be worthy? Who's going to be worthy? I, I know some people that, um, who is worthy to open the books? I know some people, well, John, John Wesley is worthy because he's going to be, remember, he's going to be so close to the throne of God, you won't be able to see him. No, it doesn't change. John Wesley was a fool, a heretic, a liar. He hated God. Christ is the only one worthy. He is the one that's to be worshipped. Hebrews, we'll probably stop after this. Maybe. Hebrews 7, verse 19. For or because the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing up of a better hope did, by which we draw near to God. Now, we, what this is saying is we don't draw near to God by the law. Does anybody see that in there? Do you think that's maybe what they thought in Galatia as the Judaizers crept in by stealth and started preaching? It's, it's not Christ alone, but you draw near to God by certain aspects of the law, right? This says the opposite. God, who gave the law, is saying to the carnal mind, you're not being subject to my law. Most people would go to that text, for example, in Romans 8. 
carnal mind's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. They would take that text and flip it on its head and saying being subject to the law of God is drawing near to God by the law of God. It's opposite. We honor the law by seeing that Christ fulfilled the law and satisfied the law. And we fear God out of a reverential fear by saying this is the one that has to be who deals with the law for me. Because as soon as I start dabbling in it, I'm going to infect it and I'm going to poison it with my own sin. Law is a curse. I, got, I, I don't want to be immersed in the curse. I need to be redeemed from the curse. Christ must be made a curse for me. If we have time, we're going to get to uh, Galatians 3 and talk a little bit about that. But uh, again, in a covenant context, this is part of the conditions that, that Christ has to deal with the law. I can't deal with it. That's why I came to Christ. I can't deal with the law. That's why I came to him. The schoolmaster showed me that. I've learned my lesson. The schoolmaster says, you can't do this. You can't do it. I got the message. I looked to the one who did it. Right? That's, that's what the gospel does in an effectual way. Inasmuch as he was not made a priest without an oath, because the priests were made without an oath, but this one, here was made with an oath by him who said this, said to him, the Lord has swore and will not repent that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 10, uh, 1 through 4 we looked at, I think last week or the week before. So he's showing the distinction between the two covenants that this priest was made with this oath. And this was before time in the covenant. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant. Everything about this covenant is better than the old covenant. And truly were many priests because they were not allowed to continue because of death. Priests had to continue to be replaced because they didn't live forever. But he, Christ, because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those that come to God by him, since he lives forever to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He was sanctified. What he, I think it was... John 17, I think it was, he said, sanctify me so I can sanctify them. Who does not need as those high priests in the old covenant to offer up sacrifice daily first for their own sins and then the sins of the people because he did this once and for all time when he offered up himself. Because the law appoints men high priests who have infirmity, but the word of swearing of an oath after the law has consecrated the Son forever, having been perfected. So these 
the swearing or the oaths involved have to do with promises, terms, conditions. It's, it's all covenant language. In other words, this thing of salvation is, is not lackadaisical or just some flippant thing where it's, it's common. You know, I mean, even in the old covenant, you look at all the things involved, how particular they were. Do you think Christ, in reference to the new covenant, do you think the particularness and the meticulousness of what was going on was a little more particular? Yeah. Yeah. The first covenant was set up to fail on purpose. It was to show you can't keep it. And all it did was point to the one that could be kept by only one person, the mediator of it, right? So you might look at uh, different things in the Old Covenant and you know all this detailed stuff that goes on and on and on, and you have a tendency to just like, oh, I think I'm going to skip over this part, man. This is boring. It's so like, how come they're using this certain kind of wood and they're doing certain things with it and they've got these vessels, they do these things this many times and they need this many animals, and, the, and it's all like... Man, that's some detail. Don't change your mind when you come over here and look at Christ because it's it's more magnified and more sure and certain and must be done a certain way. And I say that because some people have this idea that, you know, God was real strict in the Old Covenant. But Christ came and he, he lightened things up. He, he toned it down. <laughs> no, no, he jacked it up. He jacked it up. Therefore, as it says in Hebrews, toward the end, it says, it compares the two mountains, compares the two covenants. It said this was done back then. There's, there's more light here in this new covenant, and there's more accountability as a result. He just spoke then. He shook the earth. He's not just going to speak. He's going to shout, and everything's going to be destroyed and taken away. And, and in other words, your accountability level is jacked up now because this one who is more meticulous, who is perfect, and who is better in this covenant, he magnified the law. He made it honorable. He satisfied the law. He fulfilled it. The one that's full of grace and truth. And people don't see that transition. They look at him, and then they turn right back around, and they go up that other mountain. That one that even when animals touched it, they were thrust through with a dart. And there was lightning, and there was, it was a lot of smoke and stuff. And, but there's some kind of other smoke that's causing them not to see which mountain to deal with. It's smoke and mirrors of self-righteousness. I'm going to stop there because Galatians 3 is next, and uh, I'm going to expand something out of that, try to maybe connect what Galatians 3 is saying about uh, the covenant that when God dealt with Abraham, kind of maybe open that up a little bit, and I, and I would think that after that we would move on to the next aspect of uh, chosen in Christ to, I think, probably um, foreknowledge or love or something like that. And do a few things there and then go back to the choosing, the distinctions between those that are chosen, those are not. And then go into, there's all kinds of stuff. It just is, it's going to be way bigger than I ever thought. Any questions or comments?
about anything we talked about or what we need to talk about or we're going to talk about. Any of the verses you have, Scott, in Hebrews 7, uh, verse 19, where it says, For the law made nothing perfect. Yeah. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, how would you defend that verse against the worship salvation people who say that, well, you know, we're not saying that we're, we're perfect, but we are going to become more holy and use that verse to, to justify that? Well, uh, you know, Paul in Galatians. Uh, three, or I can't remember where he said this, but he said, I, I don't know, do you hear what the law says? That's what he said. And what he was getting at there is that um, it goes back to the character of God. The character of God is God demands perfection because he's holy. He demands absolute perfection. And having heard that, you know, that's kind of a scary thought because nobody has that. So we have to look outside of ourselves, and our only hope is Christ, who is perfection, who took that law that we could never keep, and he fulfilled that law. And um, he didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it, and he satisfied it. And there are enough clear passages throughout that tell us how we are to view that law. Galatians is clear enough. Some would say, well, we're not talking about justification, we're talking about sanctification. And as I had mentioned in the Lordship series, people that say that eventually contradict by investing the focus and importance on sanctification because that's where they're at in their life, right? They believe it's progressive, and and it's way different depending on where where a person goes to church or who they read or who they listen to. It's not I, I can't give blanket statements because it's not all the same. But if the shoe fits, wear it. You know, some people, John Piper's one, who clearly comes out and says at the beginning in justification it's unconditional, but the rest of salvation. He, he said this, final salvation is conditional on what you do. He's written articles about it. He's got like 12 conditions. He, I think in his book, uh, Future Grace and some other books, I don't read his stuff. I just read quotes from other people. I don't, I don't, have, got, I don't have enough time to read the stuff I want to read. But that's just an example of what is done. They, they bring a condition later in the back door and then, and then they look at sanctification, which they don't believe is finished. They, they think that sanctification, you know, the Catholics, they don't think you're a saint until you're done, and you don't know. You've got to wait and find out. Really, there's no difference here. Unless you're, what they think sanctification is progresses enough. I don't know to what standard. The, the point is they're not using the standard perfection. That's what we're getting at. If they're not using that standard, everything else is substandard. So what we do is we see that and we talk about that and expose that. Of course, we're always accused of we're antinomian or, you know, we are not to obey God at all. I mean, we talk about that all the time. It's our reasonable service to obey God. 
and we talk about how to obey God. But to draw near to God is to worship him and obey him out of thankfulness and gratitude and love because of what he did with that law in our place. We don't take the law and say, now I'm going to, I know I'm being tested right now and I know I'll be graded at the end and I don't know how it's going to turn out. And um, so I know it's going to cost me everything, quote unquote, Steve Lawson. And, um, yeah, you know, the I guess the Gospel Coalition, it's going to be some, it's going to be 12 preachers going to be sitting around the thrones, I guess. I don't know who, all who they are, but it's kind of, that's kind of it in a nutshell. We draw near to God by looking to Christ. We honor the law by doing that. Do we make void the law through faith? God forbid. But those that put their hands on the law and say, watch this, and I'm going to be judged by what I do in the end, and it'll prove my justification, and I base all my assurance on how I do with the law. Wickedness. Wickedness. Curse. It's the administration of death. It's, it's uh, not learning from the schoolmaster. It's implying the schoolmaster failed in teaching. And they say, you mean you can do anything you want? Man, I tell you what, I, can't, I cannot do enough. I, I want to do so much for the glory of God. I don't have enough time in the day. And when I do find time and I fail, I'm, I'm miserable. But what do I do? I don't base my assurance on it. I just look to Christ. It's, it's uh, the most dreadful, doubtful way of so-called salvation is it is turning everything in and looking inwardly to base your final salvation on how you do. I came to Christ because I couldn't do it. That's why I came to him. Are you so foolish that you started in the spirit and you're going to end in the flesh? No. We have no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3. Zero. I'm going to do Lordship Part 11 here if I keep going, so I better stop. <laughs> I, I know I had mentioned to um, the congregation before, uh, I may be letting this cat out of the bag a little early, but it's a bonus for the Facebook Live people, thinking about having a conference on the subject of um, sanctification and, and Lordship salvation, maybe in the fall. So I know some people will be excited about that. Anything else before we cut it off? Conference, April 14th and 15th. Richard Warmack, guest speaker. James Mawali, uh, Sovereign Grace preacher from Africa, will be showing what is going on in Africa and the, and the preachers that uh, he's teaching over there. So looking forward to that. It's just right around the corner.